Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting February 21st. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, is there a science to comedy? We'll talk about that with Mo Rocca, and journalist Karina Wu talks about some of the stories she found at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which just wrapped up in San Francisco. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Mo Rocca. You know him as a field correspondent from The Daily Show and many other radio, TV, and print outlets. He's also the host of his own show on the Discovery Channel on Sirius Satellite Radio. I spoke to him last week at his Sirius studio just before he went on the air. Mo Rocca, pleasure to be, well, at your place today. Well, this is very exciting to have Siam's podcast come into my Sirius cubby. What are you doing on the Scientific American podcast? Trying to learn something. I'm hoping that by being a guest, this is uh, this is my stealth way of actually learning something about science. Well, let's talk seriously because you are a social commentator. You're you're sort of an anthropologist. I see you on CBS Sunday Morning. You're on the Tonight Show. You have the Serious Show, and we'll talk about that Serious Satellite Radio. I know you went to Harvard. What did you study at Harvard? Um, I um, majored actually in media whoring. And I minored in English literature. So, um, no, all the, that's, I, I, in fact, I took one course in anthropology on human suffering and it was too much of a downer. It's true. And the, 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 um, it, the, the only suffering that happened, um, was my humiliation because the seminar instructor called me on not having done my reading. This is absolutely true. Um, I, um, it, that's the closest I'll ever come to being labeled an anthropologist. Um, and, uh, it, no, I'm, I'm a fundit. I'm a fun pundit. Um, it's, it, 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 you know, cable television is my, is, is my playground. You know, remember cable in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Cable is my classroom. Right. That's where I've learned lots of different things. It's, it's, a, it's a shrewd way of getting paid to learn the stuff that you should have learned in college and didn't. Well, clearly you have a big interest in science and technology or you wouldn't be doing the show that you do on Sirius. I guess you're right. Um, it, 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 now I hope that people don't tune in expecting to hear heavy duty science. I took AP Bio. Um, it's true though, and I and so I remember the whole um, uh, kingdom phylum. Right. Um, it, it, it didn't, wait, wait, class, family, species, subspecies. I left a couple out of there. Yeah, there there are various mnemonics to remember yeah. that stuff. Um, some of which are unsuitable for children, so we we won't get into them now. But that's Siam After Dark. Exactly, a yeah. show that we have on the drawing board. So, uh, what, tell us about your serious program. It's on the Discovery Channels. Yeah, it's on the Discovery, it's, it's, Discovery Channel Serious 119. And, uh, we talk about anything that might fall, um, under the very wide rubric of Discovery, which can include, uh, Discovery Channel shows, TLC, um, Animal Planet, Fit TV, Discovery Health. Um, I gravitate towards Discovery Health because I'm still fascinated and haunted by the Romanian woman with a 200-pound tumor on her butt. We covered that story because she only got the operation because the Discovery Channel filmed it. Mm-hmm. So they picked up the tab on it. Mm-hmm. And we figured that was a terrific way for for the disenfranchised in our country to get the medical procedures they need by turning them into television shows. 
Interesting. Well, in this age of reality television, she flew from – did she end up oh, – no, she didn't fly from Romania because um, I'm sure that there would have been all sorts of complaints about her only paying for one seat. I mean with all the, the sort of brouhaha at Southwest Airlines where if you're if you're just the slightest bit chubby, they make you pay for two seats, right? Right, right. Um, so – but they came to her. No, that's a very – that's a very shrewd gambit to, to encourage people to turn their problems into reality shows. It's the only way that they're going to get insurance or the equivalent of insurance. And, and residuals. And, for, and before we get nasty letters thinking we're being insensitive, the, the column that we ran in the magazine was pointing out the inequities in the insurance system and the mm-hmm. healthcare system in this country and was tongue-in-cheek as sort of a wake-up call to people that we really do need to fix that problem so that poor people don't have to wind up selling their disease to the Discovery Channel in order to get treatment. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with that more and the Romanian woman is doing quite well. That's good to know. I mean she's not a gymnast. If anytime I think of Romania, I, I think of, of gym, gymnastics and vampires. Oh, yeah. That's a good combination. And I think the coach was both actually. Bella Lugosi. <laughs> right. That's – no, no. Bella, Bella Caroli. Bella Caroli. That's excellent. Right. You're right. Oh, my gosh. That's that's how he he entranced all these 12-year-old girls. He was a vampire. Because why, why else would they submit themselves to years of essentially being chattel to this man in some gym in Houston or some, you know, on those uneven parallel bars? And that hurts so much when they do the thing with the uneven parallel bars. I want to talk to you about comedy. Okay. Because most of the people who appear on the Scientific American podcast, well, you couldn't really talk to them about comedy. For example, Harold Varmus, Nobel laureate, was on the program a little while it's ago. It's a funny name. It is a funny name. Harold Varmus. It would have been a terrific stand-up oh, name so back in there. the Borscht Belt, right? That's right. Oh, and the five a day with opening for Sophie Tucker and the Nicholas Brothers, <laughs> Harold Varmus. No, 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 no. It, it actually sounds like uh, something they would serve at Sammy's Romanian. It, it, it sounds it, Yiddish. Yeah. I'll have a side of the Harold Varmus. Well, it does. It sounds it sounds mushy like goulash. He's um he um it's also close to Harold Ramis. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think of that. You're right. So I think that comedy Obviously, comedy has been studied. Humor has been studied a lot by psychologists. Now, speaking of Harvard, I actually sat in on a class at Harvard on comedy, mm-hmm. and it was the most deadly thing you could ever want I'm to really see. Really shocked. There was a they 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 dissected the movie The Producers to the point where it snuffed every ounce of humor out mm. of it. Only a Harvard professor could turn The Producers into Schindler's List. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. There's obviously, if you're in a comedy club, you are engaging in sort of an experimental scientific exercise. You're 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 testing to see what's funny and what isn't. Absolutely, and hopefully, you can keep them there long enough that they fall prey to the Stockholm syndrome, and they just eat, <laughs> and they don't care how much they've had to pay in uh, in drinks um, to um, to listen to you blather on, right. and they just think you're funny and don't want to leave you. But let's talk about the theory of comedy. Is is there other than words that have the the K sound in them? Is there any kind of a legitimate theory of comedy, or is it just? I know it when I when I see it. I know it when I hear it. Um, I um <laughs> well bodily things make people laugh right. a lot. It's so funny. Like you can be as ironic and clever as you want to be, and people will go, "That's funny," but they won't be laughing. They'll right. just be saying, "I acknowledge that you said something quite funny," right. but if the, if it involves slipping or pooping, sorry, then then the real laughs come. Um, the um. 
uh, in, in theories about uh, about comedy. I think that well, there are, there are a few things that spring to mind. I um, uh, and they really are just springing to mind now. Familiarity is one thing. I actually heard Bill Maher say this, and I think he said he had learned it from Johnny Carson, or, or maybe it was Bob Hope. But uh, that there is, you know, for comics that are familiar, that their persona is familiar to people, they're already starting with a leg up, and that has something to do with with a, um, with the comfort level of an audience. Um, you know, an audience doesn't want to be alienated. Um, you know, they want to start with a certain degree of a certain degree of predictability and comfort, but that's not enough. That just makes you pleasant and nice and maybe bring a smile to people's face. There has to be that twist at the end. There has to be a discrepancy between what is expected and what happens. Um, and the laugh is almost like, um, uh, almost like the equivalent of a sigh of relief at, at this twist that you're hoping comes coming and then Figuring it out, understanding it. If it's, if the joke is over one's head, if it's just too hard to get, then you just leave people confused. But a pun, for instance, um, a, a play on words, uh, um, it, it brings a, a level of satisfaction to an audience. Um, if it's, if it's barely over their heads, not quite over their heads, but almost there and they can get it, they can figure out what the joke is, then the, the 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 aha is the laugh does that make sense yes absolutely i think if you leave it to the audience to do the work to make mm -hmm. that last connection to do that last step then they get the satisfaction out of it and the surprise is there must be parts of the brain that light up and go oh yeah that's it that's funny i and right. i got it myself mm -hmm. i think if you spoon feed it to them too much then it, you 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 might get some of the humor in it, but you won't get that same kind of visceral reaction. Well, an example of this, and, and it doesn't have to do with play on words. It has to do with maybe cultural references. And and I think that that somebody like Dennis Miller can be really really funny. And uh, and uh, I was especially a big fan of his HBO show. But it, one of his stock in trades is um, a stocks in trade. Excuse me, is a, a, you know sometimes obscure pop cultural or political references and. When people get them, yeah. when they're just at the ceiling of familiarity, people enjoy him at at, at their most. Right. Um, but when they're just too far out there, I think it it, it maybe makes some people it puts some people on the defensive, maybe, yeah. and makes them feel like they're being left out. Yeah. And you know. It's also why it's so easy to do a Dennis Miller impression. You just put any kind of references in that nobody's going to possibly understand, yeah. right? Cha cha. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I think that's all, that, that's it's a it's a balancing act between the uh, between the familiar and and and, uh, and and the unpredictable. Yeah, it's like uh, I think Robert Provine wrote a book about theories of humor that that we reviewed in the magazine, and he talks about jokes are not funny. Relationships are what makes the, are what make things funny. So that when you have Jack Benny being being uh, accosted by the mugger, and the mugger says "Your money or your life," and Benny doesn't answer right away without That's saying great. a word, the audience goes crazy. Of course, this is fifty years ago, but the audience goes crazy because they have that pre-existing relationship with the character that's so cheap. And then finally, when he says, "I'm thinking it over," then they lose it even more. But it's you see it on Seinfeld too. It's the relationships. It's it, well, it de it definitely is the relationships. And uh, and you know, before we started doing this podcast, we were talking about sitcoms and sitcom 
pilots and I get, I have the, the dubious privilege of reading them because I audition for many of them and, uh, uh, knock on all pieces of wood around you. Um, and it, it, one thing I see for the, it, it just common to the worst and the best that, 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 that holds true and is a good thing is that a, a, an emphasis is placed on the relationships because people are not, no matter how clever the wordplay is in, in, a, in a situation comedy, people aren't going to watch week to week if they don't care about the relationships. Mo Rock, I'm going to let you go because you have a show to do. And I thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you. I'm a big fan of Siam, and not just the Siam of the King and I. You can hear Mo Rocca's two-hour weekly radio show, which includes a lot of science and tech stuff, every Monday at 5 p.m. on the Discovery Channel. That's channel 119-119 on Sirius Satellite Radio. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, people remember commercials better that air in the middle of TV shows with a lot of sexual content. Story two, a competition in Ireland will judge scientists on their ability to de-jargonize their presentations and explain research in plain English. Story three, Oklahoma Senator James Inhofe, who has called global warming a hoax, also believes that the world is only 10,000 years old. And story four, researchers in Germany are developing a time-release long-term drug delivery system that would be incorporated into a patient's false tooth. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Corino Wu is a freelance journalist and one of the regular contributors to the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. She spent the last week in San Francisco at the biggest general science conference in the country, the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. For some quick takes on some of the best stories that came out of the meeting, I called Karina in Walnut Creek, California. Hi, Karina. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Steve? Good, good to talk to you. So you've been at the AAAS conference. It's uh, it's, there's always a, a million things going on. What what are some of the stories that jumped out at you? Well, this year's meeting, um, it kind of had a theme. It was called Science and Technology for Sustainable Well-Being. So a lot of the sessions um, focused on uh, environmental angle of uh, various topics. And uh, one of the kind of big things that I uh, found interesting, uh, AAAS kind of released a statement about global climate change um, that kind of echoed um, a recent report from the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, um, which talked about how global warming is uh, pretty much uh, very likely being caused by human activities. Right. Um, we, probably... we did a big thing on that on last week's podcast. If anybody wants to hear that, just just find it in the archives. Mm-hmm, exactly. So um, this AAA statement uh, basically echoed um, a lot of the conclusions, and they had kind of a big town hall meeting with about a 1,000 science teachers and students and just general the general public to kind of talk about these issues. Um, another thing that um, I found uh, kind of interesting was that they had a big panel on environmental justice, and uh, this year happens to be the 20th anniversary of a really groundbreaking report that was released um, looking at racial disparities in where hazardous waste sites are located. This was um, 20 years ago, 1987. And uh, back then, it was a study commissioned by a civil rights organization called the United Church of Christ. And um, it kind of looked at how uh, hazardous waste sites were tended to be located in neighborhoods with high minority pop- populations. And so at this panel, um, a group of researchers have done an update of this study um, using a lot better statistical methods and data from the 2000 census. And mm-hmm. 
they basically have found that basically in 20 years, not much has changed. And if anything, um, these disparities are even greater than they thought. The situation's actually gotten worse since the initial report. Well, it's it's a little unclear. Um, it's It may have gotten worse, but it just might be a factor of using these better methods. Um, they're just much better able to pinpoint where these sites are located and to kind of determine who exactly is living around these sites. I see. So this is similar to when we see uh, earlier uh, disease diagnostics because we have better techniques to find them. So it might look like there's a, a rise in a disease rate, but it's really that we're just finding ones that we missed before. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, but, you know, it's still, uh, you know, at, at least this kind of the study hasn't shown that things have improved greatly, um, even through the policy changes that have taken place um, within the last 20 years. So uh, policymakers, that information is now in your hands. Exactly. So uh, what, what about uh, any individual, you know, science tidbits that kind of jumped out at you? Any surprising findings? Any just interest stuff that's just purely interesting on it for its own merits yeah um yeah triple s always has a, a really a wide range of uh things something to appeal to everyone um one thing that seemed to get a lot of interest at the meeting um was uh a researcher who talked about uh, his work using virtual reality to treat soldiers with post traumatic stress disorder um also abbreviated ptsd and um, what he does is he uses a computer to simulate the sights and sounds of Iraq. And um, kind of by using this virtual environment, um, he kind of exposes um, these soldiers who have come back from war to uh, these, uh, this, these stimuli. And um, the idea is to kind of gradually expose them to this and hopefully desensitize them to the things that trigger their their post-traumatic stress. And he's actually done some of that work and gotten some results? Yes, there's been some trials um, done. And um, I guess the advantage of these kinds of methods is that they can really control, you know, what um, these uh, patients are seeing. Right. So um, they can really uh, kind of tailor this therapy to uh, the individual. And what researcher is that and what institution? Um, the psychologist's name is Skip Rizzo, and he's at the University of Southern California. At USC. Mm-hmm. Cool. What else? Um, there are also um, some kind of technology-focused, uh, uh, other technology-focused topics. Um, one that I went to was about malicious software. Uh, they also call it malware. And it's basically about all sorts of new and scary ways that criminals are uh, developing to scam you out of your money and uh, steal your identity. One scheme that one of the researchers uh, outlined, um, he said it's not really being used yet, but that it's a possibility, is that it's possible for these scammers to actually write a little bit of code, a little bit of script in a language called Java, which is um, used a lot, and actually have you... uh, Well, this script would actually download software on on your computer simply by you visiting the website. You wouldn't have to do anything else except visit the website, and this code could perhaps um, kind of hijack your computer. Um, so they are obviously trying to work on ways to kind of prevent that. Well, that really is nefarious. Yes. And I understand you have another story. The uh, AAAS conference always has a fun session, usually on the Sunday, early Sunday morning for some reason. And uh, what was it this year? Ah, well, this was the... Uh, 
uh, perennial chocolate is good for you session. Um, there seems to be one of these at every meeting. <laughs> right. Is it the usual antioxidants or something else? Uh, yep. It's yep. The antioxidants are the uh, are the culprit again. Um, they looked at oh, this time. They looked at the effect of chocolate on learning and memory. Um, it's been you know uh, chocolate has been linked to say improving. Uh, your risk for heart disease and, and things like that. Um, but again, they, what they did was they gave uh, this uh, cocoa that's been enriched in flavanols um, to mice, and they find that it stimulates blood flow to the brain. So uh, it stimulates some... it stimulates blood flow. Is that what you said? I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, therefore, have some seem to improve the uh, memory of mice who are uh, asked to uh, learn a particular task. This is cocoa. That has been enriched with the flavanols, but it it might not even be sweet. Right, exactly. Yes. I mean, the researchers there, one of the researchers actually just declared, you know, chocolate is still not a health food. Okay, um, good. Yeah. Right, because the, the, uh, these studies are always done with the, with the raw cocoa, which, you know, I mean, if you've ever taken a bite of baking chocolate, it's not so great. That's right. Yes, it's not not the best tasting chocolate uh, right. you can find. We're going to throw in a lot of dairy and a lot of uh, a lot of sugar to make it really tasty. Exactly right, and that's exactly what makes uh, chocolate uh, not so good for you in the end. Right, but at least uh, you know there's some mitigating factors, so you can you can enjoy that tiny little square of dark chocolate after dinner without too much guilt. Exactly. Yes, it's a good excuse to uh, have that extra dessert. Well, thanks a lot, Karina. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Steve. To get a jump on next year's meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Boston, check out www.aaas.org. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, commercials are more memorable if they air during sexy TV shows. Story two, contest for scientists to deliver understandable science talks. Story three, global warming denying U.S. Senator also holds that the Earth is only 10,000 years old. And story four, false tooth long-term drug delivery system. Time's up. Story four is true. German researchers are about to start testing a system for delivering drugs to chronically ill patients with a false tooth that would release small doses of the drug at the correct times. For more, check out the Thursday, February 22nd edition of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. Story two is true. A competition will be held next week in Dublin that pits six postgraduate research fellows against each other in front of a live audience. Their mission to present their science so that it can actually be understood. The competition called Access Science 07 takes place Tuesday, February 27th at University College Dublin. We wish them luck with their necessarily non-obfuscatory circumlocutions regarding naturalistic materialism. We'll get to story three in a moment, but story one about people remembering commercials better if they air during TV shows with a heavy sexual content is totally bogus because a study just published in the journal Applied Cognitive Psychology found that people have poorer recollections of commercials that run during sex-laden TV shows. However, a second finding was that men, only men, not women, had excellent recall of a product in a commercial if the commercial had a sexual theme. Now we need to study to see what kind of commercials Tim Hardaway really remembers. Story three is, well, we have a slight departure from our format here, and I hope you'll forgive me, because I don't know if story three is true or not. That's the one about U.S. Senator and global warming denier James Inhofe believing that the world is only 10,000 years old. But here's what I do know. 
As you heard while I was talking to Karina Wu just now, two weeks ago, this podcast covered the IPCC Global Climate Change Report. That discussion was with Siam.com Associate Editor David Biello. In the midst of our conversation, we had this exchange, which I edited out of what we played on the air. So, uh, Senator Imhoff thinks that uh, this whole thing is a big hoax. Yeah. And he has been quoted numerous times. He's in this pitched battle with the Weather Channel of all places right yeah. now. He thinks yeah. the Weather Channel is being alarmist on this issue to to try to spike up their ratings. <laughs> um, my question is, uh, and I'm setting up, I know I'm setting up a straw man here. But I'm just curious, does anybody know, and I could certainly just, you know, call up his office too. Does Senator Imhoff believe that the Earth is 5 billion years old or 10,000 years old? Do you know? <laughs> I do not know, actually. Because, you know, if your worldview is that the Earth is 10,000 years old, it changes your entire perspective on, on a lot of issues. That is true. That is very true. I edited that out because I interviewed David the morning that the podcast went to press, and I thought it was only fair to give Senator Inhofe a chance to respond to my charge. And I'm calling it a charge if you believe that the world is 10,000 years old. I wanted the senator to have a chance to respond before I just publicly assumed that he was indeed a young Earth creationist who held that the world was only 10,000 years old. So on February 6th at 11 a.m., I called the senator's D.C. office and left voicemail. I also emailed the senator's office. That email read, Hello, just left voicemail at the D.C. office following up with email. We're trying to determine if the senator holds to the view that the Earth is approximately 10,000 years old or the view that the Earth is closer to 4.5 billion years old. This query is in regard to an interview with another reporter in which the senator's views on this question were discussed, the assumption being that the senator holds to the young Earth view, so we want to verify his position before mentioning it publicly. Many thanks, Steve Mursky, Scientific American. It's now been two weeks, and I have yet to receive a reply to my simple question as to the senator's views on the age of the Earth. So we're going to keep track of how long it takes, if ever, for the senator's office to get back to us here at Scientific American. Senator Inhofe has famously called man-made global warming a hoax. So I would urge other journalists covering global warming to ask Senator Inhofe, what else do you think is a hoax? Clearly, the scientific community concludes that the Earth is far older than 10,000 years. What is your stance on that issue? Then perhaps we can move on to the senator's views on evolution, a heliocentric solar system, and whether it was Earthlings who built the pyramids. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, siam.com. The Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And thanks to my friend Tom Besswah, who sent along a website that makes available the original radio coverage of John Glenn's historic first space flight, which took place 45 years ago this week. You can check out that audio at tinyurl.com slash 33x. 2WW. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Is a puzzlement.